Well, this morning, if you have, again, your copy of God's Word, and I hope that you do, I hope that you bring it with us each time as we gather. It is central. The Word of God leads and guides and shapes all that we desire to do here. This morning, as we continue to make our way through our study in the book of Genesis, we come to this truth about the revelation of God through the covenant. Now, many of you are probably too young to recognize this. I must credit the man up there in the and the, the balcony, Bobby Durrett, to tipping me off of this many years ago. But it was in the 1970s and 80s at the brokerage firm by E.F. Hutton. How many of you remember E.F. Hutton? They engineered those commercials, right, where people would be out jogging or they'd be riding on a train, reading a newspaper, or be a family around the meal. And then at some point, there would become the statement, my broker is E.F. Hutton, and E.F. Hutton says, and then everything would pause, the runner in mid-stride, the green bean casserole being passed around the table, the newspaper being read on that train. Why? Because everyone would seem to lean in, and then that tagline would come. When E.F. Hutton talks, people what? People listen. I want to let you know today that there's someone greater than E.F. Hutton speaking. It's God Almighty. And the reminder today is, when God Almighty speaks, God's people listen. And so as this word comes to us today, we're going to see that not only is it a revelation of the covenant, but beloved, it is a revelation of God himself. But the reality is we all struggle to listen, don't we? I mean, we struggle to listen, right? I mean, sometimes like we really struggle to listen, like what would you say? Or sometimes like our spouse says something or our parents say something and we pretend like we can't hear, right? Right? We have those moments. But maybe you wonder today, what is the evidence that I'm listening to God? What's the evidence or what's the proof maybe that my faith is genuine, that it's real? And I think one word stands out from this text and literally rings throughout the pages of Scripture. Obedience. Obedience is evidence that you and I are listening to God. It's evidence that the faith that we claim to profess, we actually possess. And so as we gather this morning, we're wondering what can transform a people? What could change us? What can move us and stir us? And beloved, it's this truth that God speaks. It's God speaking that transforms Abram into Abraham, Sarah into Sarah. It is God speaking that changes the barren into the fruitful and the blessed. It is God speaking to His people. So, beloved, when God speaks, God's people listen. Today we're going to walk through again this the revelation of God through the covenant here in Genesis 17. And I've kind of put this diagram together. Maybe it's helpful, but God's going to speak five different times in our text. And what we're going to notice is this, is that the first time that God speaks and the last time He speaks, there's a connection. And then the second time He speaks and the fourth time God speaks, there's a connection. And then the third time, there's nothing else kind of paralleling it. And so it's some way unique. And we're going to come to that. So we're going to kind of deal with the first time and the last time he speaks. The second point will be the second and the fourth time he speaks. And then finally, we'll kind of hit right in the middle as if Moses is pointing to say something here. Look, don't miss this. So let's begin with the first truth. What do the reassurances of the covenant reveal? What are the reassurances? Because God provides reassurance to Moses or uh, to Abram at the beginning and then at the end. And I think it's this answer, that God is almighty. That God is almighty. Look at me, you would, beginning, I'll tell you what, pick up verse 16 of Genesis 16. Helps get a little bit of context. It says, Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. 
So we start out, Abram's 86, right? A little bit of context. Now look what happens, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, so how many years have passed? 13. 13 years of silence and more barrenness and more long nights and hopelessness. So 13 years have passed between the ending of Genesis 16 and the beginning of Genesis 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him. So again, right? sometimes I think we assume that, man, God was speaking every day. But it, it seems there's some sense of span of time, silence, of those dark nights of the soul we might often speak of. But the Lord comes into that moment. He speaks and he says, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. The story begins with reassurance, moments when God is answering those questions. Why? Because they spent 13 years now waiting. Sarah continues barren. The promise appears still hopeless. And I think Abram is wrestling maybe with what we're wrestling with as readers. Maybe the promise is going to be fulfilled ultimately through Ishmael. We, we all struggle, don't we, with powerless moments? Wondering, will God ever deliver? Will God ever act? And into that silence of 13 years, God speaks. And he says, and he introduces himself. Notice what he does there, beginning in verse 1. I am God Almighty. I am in Hebrew, El Shaddai. The truth is, we're not necessarily certain exactly what the word Shaddai means. We assume that it means God Almighty as it's often translated or it indicates the self-sufficient one. But there's some mystery, again, to God's name here about El Shaddai. But the reminder is he has power over nature. He has the power to tell things, you do this and they will do his will. In other words, only one can provide hope in a hopeless situation. And the Bible says that person is God Almighty. Amen? And what is the response that Abram is to have? Well, notice there's two things that stand out. He says, first, you are to walk before me. And secondly, he says, you are to be blameless. The word walk before me doesn't indicate this one-time thing. It's indicating a lifestyle of action, right? Just like we walk, we continue to make progress. We're, it's not just a moment in time. He's saying, listen, all of your life, Abram, whether you're out in the field working or whether you're in the tent in private, everything you do, Abram, is before me. None of your life is hidden before me, Abram. I see everything. You're, you're in my presence continually. Walk before me. Secondly, he says to him, be blameless. Now, that's the word that's used to describe Noah back in Genesis chapter 6, but it's also the word that's often used to describe the sacrificial animals, that they would be spotless and blameless. God desires a pure and spotless people. That's Revelation. You hear the echoes of it, right? This pure and spotless bride coming to us. But I want to pause for a moment and consider and contemplate the fact that every, every moment of your and my life is in the presence of God. Contemplate that for a moment. Know where you go. Wherever you go to eat after this or however you eat, whatever the rest of your day looks like, it'll be in the presence of God. Wherever you go to work tomorrow or whatever you do around the house or whatever, whether you're in public here or in private, everything you and I do is ultimately in the presence of God. We are walking in before Him. And beloved, listen, I think it ought to compel us by the power of the Holy Spirit to make, put to death the sin in our life, to live this life of blamelessness. But I think we must be encouraged that, listen, guys, it's not just simply that God Almighty is with us. The New Testament says by the power of the Holy Spirit that it's actually God Almighty within us. 
It's the transformation. He's the power for you and I to live this life of blamelessness and walking before Him in purity and holiness. Again, that doesn't indicate that we're perfect. No. But, beloved, there ought to be a life of holiness and purity. What is the reason for this? Well, notice what he says here. That or so that, verse 2, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Again, it's been 13 years since Genesis chapter 16 ended and the promise of Genesis 15. But listen, it's been almost 25 years since the promise of Genesis 12 began. Right? To leave your family and your kindred and go to the, the place that I'll show you and I'll make you fruitful and great and a nation. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. It's been 25 years waiting. And God comes to reassure Abram, listen, Abram, don't judge by what you see or what by what others say. Trust in God Almighty. But just as Abram's story begins with God speaking and reaffirming him or reassuring him of any doubts, guess what? That's in a similar way how the story finishes. You see, God's going to promise again that Sarah and, Sarah and Abram are going to have this, this child together. But Abraham has his doubts. Look what happens here again as the story kind of comes to a close. Again, the last time that God will speak. And Abraham said to God, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Like, God, I, I still see how it's going to happen. I, I think the better plan is just go with Ishmael, right? And God says, verse 19 of Genesis 17, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with, covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father twelve princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. He says, listen, Abram, as has been said, God's delays are not God's denials. God's delays are not God's denials. Listen, Abram, I, I hear you. And listen, I, yeah, I, I'm going to bless Ishmael. Right? And we hear that there's going to be 12 princes come from him. And there's, he's going to be made into a great nation. There's going to be an absolute like blessing upon Ishmael. Even this wild donkey of a man, right? There's, there's this way in which he becomes intertwined with Abram. And God's promise to him. But the assurance, the promise is, listen, he says, I want you to know, listen, it, it's, not, it's not Hagar, it's Sarah. It's Sarah. It's you and Sarah. All these years of barrenness, I, I want you to know that this time next year, you're going to have a son and I, his name's going to be Isaac. God is there and he's just speaking, reassuring him, listen, my promises will not fail, beloved. Not one of God's promises will fail. Not one of His words, as the Old Testament often says, fall to the ground. There's not one moment in which what God speaks does not come to pass. Maybe you need to ask this morning, what if you begin to doubt? Maybe you doubt that God will keep you saved until the end. Then you need to remind yourself of the promise that Jesus said, I will lose none of those whom the Father has given me. Maybe you have doubts because of things that you've done that God could ever use you again because you've, you've messed up too much this time. Maybe you need to be reminded of the truth of God's Word in passages like Isaiah 44 and 22. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud. Your sins like the morning mist. Return to me for I have redeemed you. Beloved, I don't know what you're doubting, but beloved, I want to encourage you and I to replace it with the truth of God's Word. We sing it standing on the promises of God, don't we? are we beloved 
So again, the story begins with God speaking. So we saw this first connection, the first and fifth, God reassuring. Now comes the second and fourth speech when, when God will speak here. And what happens here is, is that, guess what? What are the promises of the covenant reveal? I think it's a question we should ask. And it's this, that God is everlasting. What are the promises of this covenant that's happening here? This, this is one of the more important chapters of the entire Old Testament. Much of what happens throughout the remaining pages all the way through Revelation is built upon very truths from this text. And so what do these promises reveal, beloved? They reveal some great truths, but I think ultimately they reveal to us who our God is and that he is everlasting. Beginning in verse 3, look what it says. Abram fell on his face, right? He hears this promise. God's going to bless him. Again, it seems like, man, God, it's been so long. It's been 13 years now, 25 since it began. But again, God speaks. Verse 4. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. This is a transition point, right? The previous, all the previous chapters leading up to this, 12 through 16 or 11, even back in 11 when he's introduced, he's always Abram. From this point forward throughout Genesis and throughout the pages of Scripture, he is Abraham. He says, no longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. Why? For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Again, that name Abram just means um, exalted father. The word Abraham indicates father of a multitude. That's exactly what it says there. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. That's what his name indicates. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I'll establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Again, there's a similar echo in his fourth time he speaks, and this time now he speaks about not just Abram, but Sarai. Look what it says. And God said to Abram, verse 15 of Genesis 17, as for Sarah, your wife, she shall not call, you shall not call her name Sarah, but Sarah shall be her name. The word Sarah or Sarah both means princess. But both are indicating this change of name with Abram and Sarah indicates God's doing something new. Something's happening here. So again, both of them are getting a name change. God's saying that. Look what he says now further. Verse 16. I will bless her and moreover, I will give you a son by her. Not just Hagar. You tried to go your own way. You tried to do it your own way. But listen, even your failures will not make null and void the promises and the faithfulness of God. Hallelujah. To all of us that have messed up and blown it. What a measure of grace. Wow. God, you're not done with me. I mean, that just makes it, it makes me so astounded to say that's the heart of God. And I hear, hear the prophecies, right, of Jesus, that a, a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, a bruised reed he will not break. Beloved, he is gentle and lowly of heart. Does that not usher you to him in our weakness and our frailty? I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. Then Abram fell on his face. This is the second time he falls, right? Both are connected to the second and the fourth speech. And he laughs and he says to him, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? I think there's many things happening in these promises, but I want to reel maybe four things that show us about that God is the everlasting God. First in verses four through six, right? He, he, he makes these promises 
that he's going to make them into a multitude of nations. Right? We drew attention to it earlier. Right? He says it again there. I made you the father of a multitude of nations. He says, listen, I'll make you into nations and kings shall come from you. It's a reminder, listen, that listen, this multitude of nations, it's saying something. It's expanding the horizon. It's not just for the Jews, but also for the Gentiles. This is God's heart. Listen, this is God's heart. God desires that all people and nations and tribe and tongue would come to worship Him. As the Word of God says, He desires that none should perish and all should come to repentance. Is that you this hour? This is God's heart for the nations being revealed. He loves all people. He desires that all would come to know Him and worship and treasure Him. So again, in the midst of that, he just he says, listen, Abram, I'm providing reassurance. Abram, who's 100, and Sarah, who is 90, will have a son. I mean, imagine like today you go to eat or gather with your family and like your grandparents or maybe somebody got some great grandparents. They're like, hey, we got an announcement. Like, yeah, what's that? Like, well, we're pregnant. And like even like when I thought about it, like that illustration falls short, right? Because I mean. Abram and Sarah, they aren't parents and grandparents and great like them personally, right? I'm mean, Abram and, and, and Hagar, yeah, but like I mean, you'd be like, what? What? Whoa! What'd you say? But this is the promise of the everlasting God. This is God Almighty speaking. He can do right what is impossible with man is possible with God. And then God, listen, He, he promises to bless His people then and now. Look what He says there, uh, verse seven. I'll establish, I'll establish my covenant between me and you. Notice what he says here. And your offspring after you throughout their generations. Right? You sang some of that this morning in the blessing. And listen, it's just a reminder. There's more sons and daughters coming. And that is part of, I think, what Peter is picking up on in Acts chapter 2. Right? Remember the day of Pentecost? He says that Jesus, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And it says the people are cut to the heart. And they cry out, what must we do to be saved? Like, we've killed the Son of God? And Peter responds in verse 38 of Acts 2, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 39, he says, And this is for you and your children and all who are far off, all whom the Lord our God will call. The promise to Abram to bless the offspring throughout the generations ultimately finds its fulfillment in Christ and beloved by God's grace and mercy some 2,000 years after Christ. It comes to you this morning. You can be a part of the family of Abraham by faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is how it's coming to us. And that's what Peter is proclaiming. I mean, consider this everlasting God that is not only with Abram all these years ago, not only in the time of Christ, but He is with us now thousands of years later. I mean, contemplate that in the light of reality this past week. The queen began reigning, right, and reigned some roughly 70 years. But now she's gone. She can't ensure what happens. And in some way, right, we realize even every leader, the queen, the king, the president, whoever they are, they're limited. But God is different, beloved. He is the immortal God who rules and reigns forever. He is the sovereign God. He is, as Melchizedek said a couple weeks ago, He's the possessor of heaven and earth. 
There is no impeachment. He will not resign. He is God Almighty forever and ever. And beloved, that ought to cheer your soul up this day. That ought to comfort your heart. And then look what he says here in verse 8. He promises the land then and now. This is one of the more rich promises of the Word of God, one that many wrestle with and consider. But listen to this. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourn. So he's been talking about this land that I'll show you. And now he makes something that wasn't clear now clear. Now remember, it's taken 25 years to get there. That's a good word for my soul this morning. I want God to tell me about the land and all the things yesterday. But God's not. He doesn't work on our timetable, does he? It's 25 years ago. He said, go to the land that I'll show you. He didn't even tell him where he's going again. There's like no Zillow, right? I mean, there's no like, God, show I mean, there's none. And then he makes this emphatic claim that has not yet been made. Look what he says here. To the land of your sojournings, all the land of where, church? The land of Canaan. The first time. And then he says this. For a what, church? Everlasting possession. An everlasting possession. Like this is, this is, this is one of those just absolutely mountaintop moments of promising them the land. He says, I'm going to give them the land of Canaan. It's going to be an everlasting possession. Again, this has been one of the more important promises. We see it still unfolding. We, we wrestle with texts like you can write down Romans 9 to 11. It's going to wrestle with you. We see things unfolding, right? As we look toward Revelation and different points all throughout the history, there seems to be this land and all this constant tension. And then we, by God's grace, live in a time period where many of us, right, some of you may be living personally, but we've now seen that in 1948 the nation of Israel was recognized. You see, I think that reminds us that it was back in the 1700s, King Frederick the Great, the king of Prussia, he asked his physician this question. Give me proof of the existence of God. And the response was, Your Majesty, the Jews. Consider it. Egyptians couldn't hold them. The Assyrians and Babylonians couldn't hold them down forever. Hitler couldn't exterminate them. There's something about the people of God. And when you listen, listen, beloved, they experience judgment absolutely throughout the pages. But we know that it remains true that those who bless Abram will be blessed. And those who curse him will ultimately be cursed. This is an everlasting possession. But, beloved, beyond the land and beyond all that's happening here, the greatest thing that happens is how verse 8 closes. Look what it says. And I will be, what church? Their God. The greatest thing that God has to give is himself. I mean, that's Paul in the Romans to us, right? It says that his arguments from the greater to the less. He says, if God has given you Christ, will he not graciously with him give us all things? Saying, if God's given you the greatest, most treasured possession He has, His only begotten Son, you think He's going to hold out on you on so many other small things? Paul's saying, listen at the heart, look at the heart of God. And that's what's happening here in this everlasting covenant. It's, It's unfolding here. I will be their God. I'm giving you myself. It's just unbelievable. I mean, we were on the way to church this morning and we were just 
thinking about some we've had battling sickness in our family and some have been missing and thinking about different people in the church who are sick or and not able to come and thinking about times when we're away or we travel or maybe when we move or whatever. And I was like, guys, do you realize there's not been a Sunday that God has not gathered with his people? Think about that. He's never sick. He's never late. He's, ne- he's never off in some distant country and like, I can't make it back. There, there's no one like God. And shouldn't that encourage all of us that if generations and generations continue and we're not here anymore, that God Almighty will be? Amen. That's the hope. So again, five times God speaks. We've heard the first and the fifth, how they're connected to the second and the fourth with the changing of the names and the promise, right? There's going to be descendants and nations and kings, both to Abram and to Sarai. But then this unique moment, I think, happens here in the third time when God speaks. And that's verses 9 through 14. And I think we asked this last question. What does the sign of the covenant reveal? That God is demanding. Yes, he's almighty. Yes, he's everlasting. But beloved, he's also demanding. Listen to this radical demand that God places upon Abram. And God said to Abraham, verse 9, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any, listen to this warning, any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He he has broken my covenant. The sign of the covenant is is circumcision. Right? And I know this recognizing our audience and so, but nonetheless, it's here, right? This was a mark of people. And it's interesting, I think, that Abraham doesn't ask God, well, what are you talking, what's circumcision? What is that? Well, that's reason why is because historians tell us, and then you can write it down, uh, Jeremiah chapter 9, 25 and 26, speaks of the fact that other nations practice circumcision. This wasn't unique just to them. But something's happening here in this moment. It's a sign that, listen, guess what? You are entering into a covenant relationship with me. You are responding in faith to me. Does Abram do it? Or Abraham do it? Look what happens how the text closes. Verse 22, Genesis 17. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham. Then this moment begins. Then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God had said to him. And then, listen to this. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. And Ishmael, his son, was 13 years old when he was circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin. That very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, and all the men of his house, those born in the house and those bought with money from a foreigner, were circumcised with him. That's radical faith, isn't it? And I mean twice, it's trying to make sure very emphatically, right? Verse 26 and verse 23, that very day. Like that, that's, that's, it's no waiting, it's no delay, 
Right? I mean, like, let's be honest. If there's ever a moment to get Gideon's fleece out, that's it, isn't it? Like, God, you sure? I mean, this, this calling, in fact, it makes us uncomfortable, not just simply maybe physically as we think about it, but listen, there's something uncomfortable about the fact we, we don't have a problem thinking God's everlasting or that God's almighty, but you say God's the man, and you're like, whoa. Right? Don't let him infringe on my little bubble of life. But beloved, his actions demand our obedience, don't they? His goodness, His grace, His kindness demand our rightful response. But the moment there is obedience demanded of us, right, we want to check out. And that's not the way of faith. I don't know what's being demanded of you today, but let's be honest, man. A brother that's 99 being circumcised, that's pretty tough. And I think the text is just saying to us, listen, and it's a mantra that's often been repeated. Delayed obedience is disobedience. And I want to ask right now, in what ways of your life are you living a life of delayed obedience, of disobedience? Maybe it's children here that just don't seek to obey their parents when they're asked the first time. We talked about it many years in Sunday, Sunday school years ago, right? We're going to do it right away, all the way with a happy heart. Maybe right now you need to wrestle with, are you being obedient to give or to serve and however God's asking you? But in that, listen, don't make it some mystical experience. Beloved, anytime we read and hear the word of God and we don't obey it, that's disobedience and that's sin. That's a demanding God. And only a God who is holy and righteous and altogether good is worthy of that demand and our rightful response. I think in response to this, we might need to ask the question, well, why don't we continue to follow this? If this is the covenant and the sign of the covenant, then why aren't we practicing that as a church? We're God's people and we claim to be children of Abraham. I think it's a great question. And in fact, if you read your New Testament, the New Testament wrestles with that question continually. In fact, they have a huge meeting in Acts chapter 15. You go home today and read about. And they come away from that meeting saying that, listen, circumcision is not required that ultimately people are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no work. Even the, this great sign that was given to Abraham, there is no work that can make us right with God. And in fact, if you read the book of Galatians, guess what? The church there is still struggling with it. They're asking the question, Christ plus what equals salvation? They think Christ plus circumcision, that's the way in. So if you're a Gentile and you want to come in to be a part of God's family, the only way to do it is to go back to Abraham and be circumcised. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. It's Christ plus nothing equals salvation. It is Christ alone. There is no work, no act that we are saved by. Now listen, this is where the Jews seem to get off track with circumcision. And the truth is we can in some way as well. They think that as long as you have the outward action, then that means that you're inwardly good. But that's not the case. But the danger is, guess what? For us, it's not circumcision, but often it's, hey, I prayed the prayer. Hey, I went and was baptized one time. I'm good. I can check right back out and live any way I want. Beloved, again, we may not be practicing the circumcision, but the same heart remains so often. And so Paul sets the record straight for us in Romans chapter 2. Look what he says, verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. Whoa, Paul says, listen, there's something more happening in this act of circumcision. There's something deeper that we may miss. Listen to what he says. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of what, church? A matter of the heart 
And this happens by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. He's saying, listen, guys, I I want you to know that God was ultimately always after our hearts. The obedient act indicated that they were trusting. They had faith in their heart. It was this outward action was indication of an inward heart. And that's why Genesis 17 and 14 in this very chapter warned that those who did not go forward with circumcision, he says they'd be cut off. Now, again, there's some graphic imagery happening there, but there's some indication in which God's going to bring judgment. So maybe you're here today and you wonder, then how might my heart be circumcised? If God's not after something outward, but really something inward, then how do I get right with God? Paul answers that in Colossians chapter 2, verse 11 to 14, talking about the same subject. Listen to what he says. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. So again, Paul says you, you were circumcised by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. How does this, how does this happen? He says it comes to us through Christ. Circumcision now takes place in the heart. It, it's, it's by the Spirit, as he says there in Romans 2. There's something happening with Christ and being united with Him. Look at it says, verse 12. Having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith and the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. And you who were dead, this is all of us, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. He says our hearts are uncircumcised. They're sinful. They're rebellious. They're wicked. But notice what happens. This is what God does for us. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands that he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He says, you want to know how God changes the heart? He does it through Christ. Christ who goes to the cross in our place and the record of debt that stands against us and declares our hearts are not circumcised. That we're sinful and guilty and rebellious and deserving of eternal wrath. Paul says that Christ bears our sin and pain and judgment. And he himself in some amazing way, and only the mind of God can truly comprehend that the circumcision of Christ happened there in the cross. That he himself was cut off that you and I might be brought in. It's the hope of the gospel. I think, beloved, that's why we sing, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Let the church say amen. That's the hope that you have. You don't bear your sin anymore. Christ has come and circumcised our hearts by grace through faith. To the unbeliever this morning, I have good news and bad news. Good news. Circumcision is no longer required. Bad news, the circumcision requirement of your heart remains and you cannot do anything in and of yourself to change that. But there's good news. Christ was crucified and took the judgment of God that you and I might have our hearts transformed today that we can be cleansed of our sins and purified, and as Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, and received the gift of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit who changes and transforms us to live a life of faithful obedience. It's the Spirit who indwells us now that transforms us. And guess what? By grace, through faith, this is the hope we have. We can become 
children of Abraham, those that this promise was made to all those thousands of years ago, all those who repent and believe upon Christ become children of Abraham and become a part of these nations of people that God is gathering unto himself. To the church this morning, I think we need to ask, how do we remain faithful? How do we live out this obedience? Beloved, let us not forget what initiated this rightful act of obedience on Abraham's part. It was God speaking. Beloved, let us draw near to this word. Let us not overlook what it means to gather Sunday by Sunday in this place. And hear the word. We read the word. We prayed the Word. We sang the Word. We preached the Word. And by God's grace, on those Sundays we would take of this table or someone's baptized, we see the Word. Beloved, it is the Word of God that God uses to continually change and transform our hearts. So listen, I just want to, be, I just want to ask you and I as believers, if we notice that we're getting a little cool to the Word, if we notice that we're starting to struggle and seemingly get a little distant, beloved, the Word of God this morning ushers us back. It is God's Word that continually works to change our hearts. I urge you this morning, return home. Return back to the Gospel. Begin treasuring God's Word on your Monday mornings. Holding fast on Sundays. Beloved, it is God who speaks to you and I through this Word. And as our hearts get hardened, listen, as the prophet said, his word is like a hammer hitting the hard places of my heart. Beloved, you and I need to read the word. We need to pray the word. We need to sing the word. We need to preach the word. And by God's grace, we want to enjoy when we see the word. This is the hope of the gospel. This is our DNA, church. We've not abandoned the Old Testament. We are people who continue to walk like Abraham by faith. This morning, we're going to do what the psalmist calls us to do often, sing a new song. This morning we're going to sing a song that's going to cause us to maybe pause for a moment and just contemplate our lives. And so as Brother Todd leads us, yeah, sing along, but it may be one that you're not as familiar with. That's okay. It's good to learn a new song and wrestle with the very things that we've seen here. So let's respond this morning in faith, looking to the Lord. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have given us eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, thank you that it's your word that you continually use to transform our hearts, that you continue, God, to remove those sinful, hard hearts and areas of rebellion and disobedience. It's your word, God. Thank you, God, by your grace and your kindness, you have drawn us here that we have given this last 50, 60 minutes, whatever it would be. Lord, what a small, what a small sacrifice to hear the eternal truth of God. Oh, Lord, it is beautiful and glorious. Thank you, God, for your word. Strengthen us now to respond by faith. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.